your face. We do have legendary Melbourne entertainer Doug Lucas on the line. Doug, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Doug, where do we start with you? First of all, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, where do you start? It's a big story. <laughs> Look, it really is. Let's go back to 1975 when you established Melbourne's first gay disco. What was the backstory to that happening? Well, I'll just give you a quick history before that. Jan used to run a, a couple of gay bars back in the early days. This is Jan Hilly, who was my partner from Pokies. She wanted an overflow bar because Menzies Tavern was, um, was getting too full. And I said, look, I'd, I'd run it so long as it was guys only bar because I'd, everything was a bit more um, sheltered, secluded in those days. You didn't want people from work turning up for a drink and getting sprung. So um, I got the DJ that used to work at the, um, the Dover originally. Like The bars had background music, but they were never dance bars. And it sort of started a little bit there, but then... A friend said to me, look, John Barry's got this hotel in Carlton, in North Carlton, and he's um, wondering whether you could sort of make something of it, you know, get the crowd there. And and I said, all right. Um, so that was my thing. Disco was just starting out. I, I love black music, you know, Tamla Motown, all that stuff, which was just really starting to become quite big. Um, and... Um, I thought, well, I'll do this. I'll do it, guys, only. The dance floor used to be packed. Um, my lighting system at that stage was like six paraflood lights that were attached to a, a three-channel mixer. Like I said, it was guys, only. Back in those days, you'd have the Leather Queens arriving with, with like, a, a sports bag, and they'd go down the back to the toilets and get changed into their leather. This is back in the days of the tambourines and the whistles and doing dances like the bump and the hustle and um it was it was just a great place to go. You didn't have to worry about, like I said, being sprung. There's nothing to attract straight people. It was in a quiet street. The um old police station was opposite but that was actually a breathalyzer used as a breathalyzer headquarter and um they had no qualms about us working there. And the police generally were pretty good, you know, I mean there were hyperphonic ones around but they actually preferred that we had a place that we could mingle instead of them going out, you know, um, doing reports about people being bashed up in straight pubs or outside pubs or whatever. So, and also in those days, it was a certain safety in numbers mentality. But um, I just tried to offer people what I'd like to go to myself. And I ran that for about four years until we started Pokies. It must have had a great community feel and the community must have been so relieved to have that safe space. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, look, there were previous gay bars earlier. I mean, the Prince of Wales always had a gay bar. The Woolshed Bar at the Australia Hotel had one that was down down below street level. But, I mean, they always had a lot of crims hanging there too in those days, gays, and crims used to sort of be virtually herded into the one place. Um and when I first came onto the scene in um, late 1970, the Sapphire Arms was really rocking. That was a pub that used to be on the corner of Chapel and Turak Road. And that was bumping because Maisie's Hotel, which was a majesty, was up further, was um, being renovated. But, I mean, basically it was a place people used to go to coffee lounges in those days or have parties in their private homes. So, um, yeah, it was good. It was great. I, mean, I got to meet so many people. And I think that's when that community sort of sense we weren't like people just on the outside looking in, although in those days you did live two lives. You lived one when you were out with your friends where you could scream and hoot and holler and, 
you know, be a bit camp if you wanted to be in there at work, you'd have to um, play the straight role. <laughs> you <laughs> mentioned... That's how it was in those days. I mean, you know, not like today, you couldn't walk down the street holding hands or show any public affection. Um, and like I said, it was a bit like an underground movement, you know. Absolutely. And it was kind of an exciting time, but a dangerous time to be gay. I mean, the word queer didn't really exist in terms of our community, did it? No, well, I pitied the ones who went through the 40s, the 50s, and the, the early 60s. I think they had a much harder time. I think in the late 60s, there was that sexual revolution that hit Australia, and people were sort of coming out a bit more. People were knowing more about gay people. There wasn't maybe so much ignorance attached, but there was still a lot of homophobia out there. I mean, people thought they could have a right to come up and just punch you in the face if they thought you were gay. You know, I mean, something that I've never ever understood was that why straight people were so sort of hung up on gay people or what gay people do in their bedrooms. You know, it's just, I think it's amazing. We're all the same. I mean, we think the same. We breathe the same air. We, it's just that we have... Um, partners of our own sex, but I mean, that's our business. They don't know what it's got to do with anybody else, but, but I mean, I've always believed in that. You know, I've never felt that I was pursuing anything wrong. I suppose I was proud and gay without sort of realising that, you know, I just thought I'm a nice person. I don't need this shit. I'm not going to let people put me down. I, I believe I'm doing the right thing, and I was quite prepared to stand my ground and go, well, this is who I am and this is what I do. You know, I could hardly be making a living out of the, the gay scene and being ashamed of it. The, um, Went on TV once they did a thing in the, um, what was the Australian, Financial Review. Somebody was thinking of setting up a gay gravel, um, sorry, a gay travel group. And they did interviews for us on current affairs and whatever else. And that was a bit of an eye-opener to some people. But um, I certainly didn't have a problem standing up there and saying that we had just as much right to our own exclusive clubs as, say, like a Polish club or a Catholic club or a soccer club or a... That really wasn't any different, you know. It wasn't people thinking there was some big orgy going on. Did the community call itself a gay community in 1975 when you set up that oh, first... Oh, we were camp. You were camp, we were exactly. camp, yeah. So when did gay yeah, become yeah, a term? I'm not sure where that came from originally, but we weren't gay. Gay's a word that came in a bit later. I don't know if that came from America or... Oh, no, it was one of those words that was a bit ambiguous, but you go, oh, that's so camp, you know. And now, like, we can say that's so gay, but if you put that comment up on Facebook, they bloody do it as hate speech because a few of the yobs and the hedgehogs out there use it as a derogatory term. I mean, it's getting to the stage that our dialogue's being taken away from us. But, you know, I mean, we had magazines called Camp. You know, they, they were just, it was early days of everything. The whole scene was just blooming and, uh, this was not long after um, Stonewall. Uh, for those who didn't know the history of Stonewall, that's just when the pages of these gay bars, in, uh, gay bar in America, had got fed up. The, the police were being paid off by the mafia that used to run the bars, but it was just after Judy Garland had died, and she was quite a gay icon there. Um, the police were there doing another routine raid, and the drag queens gone. Look, you know, leave us alone. We're dealing with dealing with this, this emotional thing, we don't need this shit, and they took the police on, and that was basically the birth of the gay movement. Australia was a little bit different, but, I mean, a lot of Australians still had that attitude of live and let live, you know. They didn't sort of mind it so long as it wasn't compulsory. <laughs> I think it used to be the attitude back in the day, but, um, I mean, obviously they've grown up a lot since then, but everything's a lot more open too. It's not so... 
that guarded or shielded. You started the legendary Pokies in late 1977, once again a partnership with Jan Hillier. First of all, how did you meet Jan? I was going out with a guy that lived in the same block of flats as Jan. Um, he lived upstairs and he, went, and he was having a dinner party one night and I'd arrived, Jan... <laughs> this is so true. I'd never really met a butch lesbian in my entire life. I was pretty green. I was coming from Naval Park even though I was living in Elsmith at the time, this is all still a bit new to me. It was very new to me, actually. And um, Jan was there with her girlfriend, and I just thought that Jan was a bloke. And when she stood up and I saw that massive bust of it, I was just sort of completely overwhelmed. But but she was quite a character, Jan. I mean, in those days, she, um, she was starting to run dances. She'd, um, she was working for, actually, Tip Top Bakeries and one of those delivering bread, but she'd get up tanked and she'd always had somebody in the car with her that would be racing and dropping the bread off. She was so <laughs> just fun days. But, I mean, those were the days of dinner parties and lots of private parties, and there was groups that used to organise, like car rallies, and there was functions going, but like I said, they were closed. Yeah, absolutely. It was and kind of like, you know... Pokies, um, I... For a while, there was hosting this drag show at Annabelle's, which was was a gay club called Blaze, which is at Annabelle's Hotel in in the city. Not that it was virtually next door to the University Club. Was it? And um, it was more like a talent quest show where I hosted it. And then um, I ran a venue at the Koala Motoring up on the top floor that I called Pokies which was the name that I originally was going to have for a coffee lounge because coffee lounges were quite popular in those days because somewhere you could go late because it was 10 o'clock closing, you know, to drinks and whatever else, pubs, and you could sit and have a coffee and chat with your friends, have a toasted sandwich or whatever. And I was going to open that in Dundas Place in Albert Park and then we got off the ground. So I'd um, opportunity came up to get this other place and I wanted a name, so I just grabbed that name because I'd, I'd had it registered anyway. And then Jan used to come along, and Jan had sort of been out of running venues for a few years, and she'd approached me and said, look, um, with the following you've got and the following I've got, why don't we combine forces and do something you know, on, a, on a much larger scale? And I thought, oh, yeah, why not? You know, so it virtually, from my point of view, it started off as, as a venue for the end of the week where you just go sit down, watch a little show, I think there was five of us originally when we started, you know, two two drag performers, myself and two male dancers. And um, it was going to be a quiet night, but it obviously took on a life of its own and it just grew and grew and grew. But, I mean, that was with the support of the people out there. I mean, the first night we closed the doors when we'd reached 300 people and, and yet in a heyday a few years later, when we had a cast of 10, we were getting 1,000 people through the doors. It was amazing, wasn't it? So tell us about pokies and also pennies. They alternated one each week, yeah? No, 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 no. no. This is where the confusion comes. Pokies was every Sunday. What pennies was was a girls' bar that Penny and Jan ran together. The only connection with pokies was the fact that Jan was my partner in pokies and she was Penny's partner in Penny's bar. Um, And it was sort of like a brother and sister thing, but they were never under the one... Roof. But I mean, we used, because it was all done at the Prince of Wales, we used to share the expenses of the hiring of the sound equipment and a couple of other things. But they were two separate venues. 
So tell us about Pokies. It was at the Prince of Wales, and it went for a very long time. It went for decades. How long? 14 and a half years. Wow. Wow. And it actually had a big reunion night in 2002 at the Palace Nightclub. And I, I did everything as a in a concert format. They had the big screens either side of the stage, and each of the girls had their own video history. And it was just the most amazing night. I mean, here it is, it's 30 years this year since we've closed, and people still talk about it. You know, there's, there's a lot of us out there still breathing that remember. And it was a big part of, of our, you know, our 20s, our 30s, and our 40s. Absolutely. Now, of course, you did so much uh, in the community, for the community, when HIV AIDS hit in the early 1980s and the community was organising around that. Tell us about the work you did, the fundraising and just the community education that you did. I mean, it's an extraordinary history. Well, the compares and the shows in those days were always relaying the latest information we have. I mean, as a venue owner... Jan and I got to go to the original meetings when we realised that there was a problem out there and were around when they'd actually originally formed the VAC, which is the Victorian AIDS Council. Um, we were always informed as to what the latest treatments were or you know, whether they need funds for this or whether they needed people out in Fairfield or people that were living on their own that needed TVs or microwaves or something to make their life easier. We... We would go to different businesses and ask them whether they could donate gifts. We had a big fundraiser at Pogies where we brought Ada Buttrose down from Sydney because at that stage she was the government representative or head of, the, of their AIDS program. And um, But we made sure that the money that we raised actually went to rural country Victoria, you know, rather than everything being centred just in the capital cities. Um but whatever benefit was up, we put our hand up for. I mean, you know, this is for our friends. And that time, I mean, Melbourne has always been a friendly city. It had been like the dinner party city, the private party. If you didn't know everyone that came back there when the pubs closed at 10, at least you knew who they came with. So, I mean, with everything that happened and people being in a similar situation, it actually made the bonding a lot closer. And this is what made pokies so important too because they could come on a Sunday night have great music, catch up with all their friends, bring their family along if they wanted to sit down and see a really great show and just take some of that pressure off them, but um, still be informed as to what was going on out there. So, but, I mean, you know, we also did benefits to help um, get um, Troy Melbourne off the air. You know, us performers have a saying amongst ourselves, you know, you're expected to do a certain number of benefit shows, whether it was to help also... Most of the fundraisers, I mean, we, we did all of that free of charge. Just it wasn't to promote our names. We didn't need, we didn't certainly didn't do it for publicity. We just did it because it was a way that we could help out. Absolutely, and you worked with so many incredible people, and you did so many amazing shows. Is there any one show that you did that's particularly etched in your memory? Well, I had different ones I like for different reasons. I mean. Terry Tinsel and John used to come to some amazing shows, but my personal type of show is more like I like a piano better with a band. You know, I like a more uh, traditional, a cross between a drag, what I would call a drag show and a stage show, rather than, I mean, I mean we did a lot of theme shows. We did like Winter Wonder Drag, 
tool in and made the most amazing production costumes for us. Um, we did amazing shows like The Guardian, The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, it's just years and years, and the shows kept getting bigger and bigger. <coughs> oh, excuse me. <coughs> the technology got better, the videos got better. Instead of moving something, anything that was glitter, leaving black marks across the screen you could get rid of. Um, and we had the crowd on site encouraging us every week. So, And it also opened up the opportunity for people like Laurie Lane to do the sets, Pete McBean to do the wigs, people like, like John Minogue, who's coming in choreograph, Neville Burns, who was a brilliant dancer, Peter Curran, were choreographers of the show. So... So it involved a lot of other people. We also had a piano bar. If you didn't want to dance on the disco, you'd go in the piano bar and have a sing-along, whether it was Pat Murphy, whether it was John O'Hare, or whether it was Will Convoys playing. Um, and then we had a smaller bar that we called the Can Bar. So we had three areas, like a chill area, a more relaxed area, disco. We always had the most popular music. We had Central Station on site. They were always giving us the latest music that was coming out and they were always very generous whenever we were having a special night, a birthday night, an awards night. Um, they were always very generous with donations. And in those days, all the venue owners got on really well. You know, we'd go out and have lunch once a month and sit around and just discuss what was happening. And those were in the days when you'd go out to lunch at 12 and the last one had probably dragged themselves away from the table at about 4 in the afternoon. But... Um, yeah, they were pretty heady days, the 70s. And of course, in the 80s, everybody had money. You know, you were out five, six nights a week. And that's unfortunately, was when the AIDS epidemic hit. But, but instead of breaking us as a community, it actually strengthened the bonds. And that's working with amazing people. Well, I've been blessed, you know, and I've got to work because of my profile at Pokies. And, you know, I've got to work in Adelaide. I've got to work in Perth. I've got to work in Sydney. Canberra, Tasmania. I've also worked straight clubs, which is not what your show's about, but, you know, you used to compare lots of hens nights and male strip shows and, and host Mr. New Australia Quest every year. Um, so I've been oh, most, most uh, certainly most of Southern Australia. Um, it's been a very interesting life. Um, I don't know what else I can tell you. Well, I mean, you've got just an incredible career still, Doug. That's what I find fascinating about oh, you. Your well, longevity is still going. Um, tell us about ago, DTs. Before COVID, hit, before COVID hit, I was bemoaning the fact to a few of my friends, and they obviously felt the same way, that there was nowhere for people of a certain age group to go. It's not like we're brain dead, we're old, we're past it. We still love to catch up with our friends. We'd like to know what's going on, but the fantasy ball wasn't on anymore. The alternative ball wasn't on. Queen's birthday picnic wasn't on. A lot of these functions, you know, that you'd look forward to, you know, three or four really big events a year. And it got to the stage that most of us were catching up with one another at our friends' funerals. And I just, I'd gone to a wake for Tootsie at DT's. A friend of mine, very good friend of Tootsie's, was holding it there. And... He didn't know how to sort of MC or company. He'd asked me if I'd host the afternoon. I said yes. And a couple of the older queens got up and did a couple of numbers as a tribute to Tootsie. And I thought, now this could time with my idea because there's a need for this. I was looking around. I thought, these people would obviously appreciate a chance to have somewhere to meet. And on the other hand, it gives a chance for some of the performers who don't have that 
that stage to get on to come out and perform. So I saw it as a win-win thing, and I just took off like wildfire. So last Sunday of every month, um, I host the show, not because I have to be the host, but that's that's the, that is the draw. I mean, I'm realistic enough to do. If that's what I have to do to get people there, I'm more than happy. But it's but it's a very popular, friendly, relaxed afternoon. So I'm. As I call it, I'm back in harness, but I'm very direct with the crowd. I told them exactly why I started it up, and they agreed with me 100%. So this is another time I'd hit the button right on the head. Absolutely. Doug Lucas, it has been an absolute privilege to talk to you today on 3CR. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, if people want to catch you perform the last Sunday of every month at DT's in Richmond. Thank you, James. Thank you. Bye. 3CR. We do have Terry Tinsel on the line, a legendary performer. Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jane. It's a great pleasure to have you on board. Terry, you've been an icon of the gay and lesbian performance scene in Melbourne for decades. Where do we start with your career? Well, we can go right back to the times when I lived in King's Cross, but that's really irrelevant to my story. Um in the 70s, I still don't know whether they do it today, but everybody has an 8 by 10 That's in the old-fashioned inches. 8 by 10 means a photograph. Modelling agencies had them. Everybody had them. And there were 8 by 10s done of all the girls that worked at Lay Girls or worked within the Lay Girls network up there in Sydney. My photograph was taken with the rest of them. And um, there was this company... And I say company because it wasn't associated with Lay Girls. They bought the name. And they were up there looking for what they call heads, which means a good-looking face. And they were going through the sheets like that, and they said, oh, that one's good, that one's good, we'll take that one if that one's available. Practically like a cattle call, really. And um, they picked me. And then I was a contract was thrown in front of me for four years, and under that contract was a morals contract. And then I was thrown down to Melbourne and presented to the management, which were horrified because they thought that when they read the back of my promo sheet that I was six foot three, not five foot three. So they hated me. <laughs> A morals contract. Tell us a bit about that. What did it say? Um, well, you had to pretend you were straight. You had to have a girlfriend. Uh, also, at that time, you could not walk anywhere in the street dressed as a female or dressed as a woman or dressed up in any bizarre way, really. It was, what was it called? Uh indecent exposure in a public place. So the cops gave you one minute to get out of the cab and into the venue or they book you. And what year are we talking about, Terry? 1973. Wow, okay. So that's going way back. Yeah, way, way, way back. uh, You you would never see uh, drag on the streets or anything like that. It was just, it was all secretive and everything like that. So I, I put up with Lagos for years and I heard that there was another venue opening down the street, which is Fitzroy Street, St Kilda, 
in the Prince of Wales Hotel called Pokism that was specifically aimed at gay people. The um, the whole set of initials hadn't even been invented then or even thought about, or gay, lesbian, or any, or uh, homosexual, or faggot, or any of those words were very irrelevant. Nothing had yet been figured it out like this today. And um, Jan Hillier and Doug Lucas were preparing to open a show. And I said, oh, I'd really like to be in that, to perform to gay people. They're much better. And um, so I started working there. And first of all, we just started off on the dance floor. This is how, the, how it grew into the monster. And I say that word, monster, that it did. Um, and slowly stages came and things like that and everything. And I was thinking, I was just doing it every Sunday night. Oh, the audience were fabulous. But I thought... You know, this isn't the right type of thing that gays would want to really watch because it was all tits and feathers and stuff like that, even though they were extremely appreciative. And I thought, I bet I bet they would like science fantasy or something like that. So after one night we were all sitting back and having drinks, I said to the boss, Jen, she likes to be called Janet, everybody who's over 50 would remember Jen Hillier, um, and I said, Janet, I said, I think you're heading in the wrong direction with the show. I said, they're a gay audience, and I really don't think what we're delivering is what they really want to look at. I said, can I have a go at it and make it slightly different? And she said, what are you thinking of, Terry? I said, something that's going to blow everyone's minds. And she said, you really think this is the way to go? Well, she was putting a lot of trust in me. And I said, yes, and I think I can pull it off with my partner that was a choreographer at the time. I said, and plus the sound people, I think I can do it. So she came back, she said, well, I've got 8000 bucks you can have for a budget. That was in 1982, 8000 bucks. Not particularly that much, I thought, really, what I was trying to do. And then I said, right, every, I, I called a meeting with everybody and I said, everything you've ever thought about drag and drag shows is going to go out the window. It's not going to exist. We're going to make it into an art form. So it ended up being called Women of the 80s. And it was opened up to, like, uh, I think opening night. It got huge advertising in all the gay papers in around and everything. And it opened up to about 800 people. Then after we get complete with a huge wedding finale and, and endless other things, and it cost a lot of money as well because we had to have additional staff. There was, I said, you have to improve the sound system, Janet, because we're competing with nightclub sound now. It can't sound like it's coming out of a ghetto blaster. We have to improve the lighting techniques. We, we've got so much to do to make it look like it's amazing. And when the show premiered that night and it finished, it was just dead silence. And I thought, oh, my God, I've made a dreadful mistake here. And then three seconds later, the audience were on their feet screaming. And then the next week, we had 1,400 people in it. So tell us about the costumes you wore in that extravaganza. Well... First of all, Janet was not too sure that we should be using a male's voice in the opening. And I said, well, let's forget the image, Jan. And uh, it was a 
Prince's 1999. And uh, I thought I want to give the gay people something that's going to, I can't swear, effing their minds. So I approached the, the technical people and said, look, we can't go up and we really can't go out. So I want to kind of make an airlock like you'd stay in a spaceship. And I said, and I want it to open. And they said, well, we can do that with a roller blind and paint it like an airlock. I said, well, that's a great idea. So then I thought about the costumes and I approached a very good costume maker, Treadle. We had three costume makers. We went suddenly went from a person that was hand-making costume makers to three professional costume makers. And I said, I want to make us into lizards. I don't want us to look like kits and feathers. And she said, yeah, I can do that. So we all reported to her in North Melbourne, and we were all put into these really tight calico courses. So they gave us figures, metal zips. Everything had metal zips, so you can imagine pressure that was on them. And then she laid us flat and covered us with this dreadful smelly glue and then quickly squeezed all these bits of uh, material in, pressed it into the whole things. And then when that had dried, she sprayed it kind of vomit yellow and purple and olive green and lime green. And we were the aliens that were coming out of the airlock. So I said, I said well, then I had to try and search for that, you know, that submarine sound, like, which is, believe me, is a very hard sound to find in the 80s. You could find police sirens, you could find ambulance sirens, you could find a lot, but you couldn't get that one of, like, a submarine or something evacuating. I finally picked it up off, um, I found it on a video. In fact, most of my stuff was pulled off videos or all the soundtracks. And, um... Then I said, um, can we have a smoke jam? She said, yeah, you can do that. Because right now she was quite fascinated more than anything. And I said, and can we get two commercial fans? She said, yes. So that night when the overture started, and I had big overtures, and then it just went to blackness, and then you heard this like siren sound coming off, and the sound of it, which was hard to get again, I had to use brake engines from a truck to get this like the seal had been broken on an airlock. And as the airlock opened and we had it backlit, the fans started off and the two technicians threw garbage into the air and it blew out into the audience as we stepped out. So it really must have been quite a shock for the audience to see that happening. And that was the first thing. And it was there a little bit kind of psycho shock, really. And then as we got into it more and more and it got more unrealistic, I would say, or more creative. You can look at it either way. And then we went into a wedding and um, a huge wedding sequence, these huge gowns and everything. I've never seen anything as big ever, and I don't think I ever will. So much money went into these outfits. And uh, at the time, we had a contract with uh, uh, a florist in Turak, he used to make up bouquets, and we used to have these little bouquets and had these great big artificial floral arrangements. In the center was the real deal, little tiny bouquet. And in the true wedding and everything, we just used to throw them at the audience. Well, that became the worst thing we could ever have done because anyone would kill to get one of those bouquets. They all used to be there waiting. 
It's you amazing, know, like isn't it? Like people you really waiting. knew, you really knew how to feed the audience. How did you, how did you constantly adapt to these to these hungry well, audiences, you, giving them what they wanted? It must well, have been incredibly kind of draining on your creative resources, but also very it, stimulating and exciting. Well, it well once Dan got the box office, it's called them box office receipts back, and it ran for twenty one weeks every Sunday capacity crowds, she realised, oh, Kerry may be onto a good thing here. So then she said, I'd like you to produce more of those types of shows, which I did. And there was, of course, there was two other producers that had goes in the shows, and some people may have heard their shows to mine, I don't know. But what I was responsible for is I never stopped begging for more, better sound, Janet, can we afford a bit more lighting for this show? I've got a different idea for this one. We may need to have... Can we, get, can we hire a tailor? Do we know anyone that can put sleeves properly in for the male dancers? You know, all these things. You know, and, and slow, it, basically, James, in those days, when you performed in front of an audience, you could say that you were the tip of the arrow and the arrow spread out, and there were like up to 15 technical people that made you look like you should look to a gay audience, which to a gay audience, they wanted perfection. So you had to give them perfection. And and I became a little bit of a tyrant because I just couldn't cope with the fact that if someone fucked it up in front of that, that very critical audience, it really used to annoy me. So... In the end, where I made the company a lot of money, I ended up making a few enemies in the process because I was so pedantic. But in retrospect, I think, now, why did I even goddamn bother to put 30 years of my life into that just to disappear, to evaporate? But now it's all changed, of course. Of course, you worked with Jan Hillier for, for, for ages. She was a titan of gay and lesbian entertainment here in Melbourne for decades and a very tough nut, you know, a tough customer. It sounds like she had enormous respect for you. Oh, well, look, uh, there's, you know that saying, there's always a power behind the throne? Well, Jan had a lovely girlfriend and I used to, I used to attack her from the other end of the speaker. I used to go up to her girlfriend and say, oh, you know, gee, it'd be really good if we could have this other effect. It'd really make the show. And she said, do you think that's serious? I said, yeah, 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 and just walk away, you know. And Janet would come up the week after and say, oh, guess what, Terry? And she's very butch and direct. I've got that effect you wanted, you know. You just had to work your way around it. Of but, course. But, you know, of course, oh, you also sorry, performed, you know, when the community was, was being ravaged by HIV AIDS and you were at well, the forefront of so much in that era. Can you tell us about it? Well, that was the saddest part. That was the really saddest part, that you would see people in the audience that you knew that were your devoted fans. Each person had their own cheer squad. And then suddenly they wouldn't be there. And then suddenly next week, one of your other favourite people wouldn't be there. And it was horrifying. When HIV first came out, people today that are in their 20s would not have no idea of the horror. And the, uh, 
the um, prejudice against it, and uh, it had no racial barriers. It, it gobbled up everyone that dared do the unthinkable, have sex with a condom. It got you. I can't remember how many people died, but my God, we lost half our audience, my audience, in a very limited time. It was, it was, it, it seemed, James, to be a different type of disease. Uh, the first thing you notice about someone is that their skin went transparent. And then you think, oh, he's got the, we called it the plague. He's got the plague. And then they invented this dreadful AZA. The AZT or something, I think that's the initials. Older gay people listening would remember this drug. I think it did more damage than what it did good. They seemed to get sicker on it. It was just a horrifying experience. But I lived through it, and there's still people that lived through it. Now they've got booth and all those other drugs that you can have, but then they had nothing. So there's nobody they could turn to. There was no one to look after them. You were considered you had the plague. No hospital wanted you. You were lucky enough. You this is only hearsay, but you were lucky enough. You could get a bed in Fairfield. Now Fairfield was the infectious hospital in Melbourne at the time, which is now gone. By the way, there's no infection hospitals left, um, and that was just filled to the capacity. You gave the community an enormous amount of, of, of comfort. Uh, and you did things like performing at, at Steamworks, the sauna. That was pretty amazing. Well, that, um, if I can tell you a funny story. Um, one night, Doug Lucas and I actually got invited to Steamworks to do a show. And I said, oh, let's do this. This will be very camp. So we're doing this little number together, which is kind of amateur night and Dixie, really, when I think about it. And all these guys are sitting there, and they're all sitting there with their uh, um, towels around them, like that, from them looking from them looking to us, it's fabulous. From us looking at them, we're looking at them, we're looking just nothing but a sea of penises. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it was so important for, for rallying the community, but also giving, you know, information about safe sex. Yeah, well, um, we ended up doing... I ran my course of everything I could do, and finally, in the end of it, I said to Jenna, I want to do something that's so similar to Broadway, and we did a thing called The Guardian that <clears throat> ended up costing 80000 Pardon me. <clears throat> and that's when Janet said after opening night, and two nights later, she said, you've got to stop the spending. And I said, well, I've gone about as far as I can go. And then uh, she said, oh... Can you do one more show? And I said to the produce, to my other semi-producer at the time, I said, I'm so over it. I said, we put so much time and effort into that goddamn show. She took the master, censored half the dialogue out of it, so no, 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 made no irrelevant sense to an audience watching it. She destroyed half the lighting. I was very upset how she created because once I sold it to her, it was hers. She could do what she wanted with it. I was very upset how he destroyed that show. So I said in actually in quite a vicious way, I said, let's make the most tackiest, shittiest, awfulest, dreadfulest drag show you've ever seen in your life and give it to her. And they said, oh, Terry, you can't do that. It's so evil. I said, no, let's do it. 
So as we started to do it, I looked at the choreographer halfway through mounting and I said, am I thinking something that this is not so as bad as I'm led to believe it is? And they said, I think you might be on another winner. I said, oh, don't tell me that. I didn't want that to happen. They said, yes, you're on. So then I realised it was going to be a winner. And by this time, Renee Scott, which has since passed away and known with older people at least to be a legend of all legends, um, was, uh, said to Jan that unless she does pre finale, she was not doing it in the show. She was doing a little bit of an iffy bit, really. But she was extremely popular, and I knew if shows had to work, you had to make Renee happy. So I, I found this bunk for leaving on a jet plane that still wasn't an older gay people's favourite thing we've ever seen. And the other guy said, don't give it to her, don't give it to her. She doesn't deserve it. No, 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 she'll just trust it. Love, she is the star. She gets the best material. It's not up to you. I have to make the show work. And Renee's a prime thing that makes the shows work. So I thought, right, she's doing leaving on the jet plane. She's just standing there for the whole thing. How am I going to make the audience, apart from her being brilliantly good at it, how am I going to make the audience compelled to watch her? So I asked all the technical guys around and said, we've got some good ideas. So they said, we have a flat mirror ball. Now, if you put a special, that means a key light that goes in a special place. Above the mirror ball, behind her, and we smoke it, when she's doing the number, a rainbow effect will shoot out from behind her, like angels, or when you see God, depicted sometimes in that way. And all she has to do is just do movements, but she must be in a fishtail, so it hides everything. I said, yeah, that sounds great. And then Renee happened to say, oh, I've got a hairdresser. And she brought in this six-foot-long piece of hair. And I said, oh, Renee, if you can get that in a ponytail in the time allotted that you have to change, you just have to turn, stand on your side and do movements and that hair fall into the ground, they'll pass out. It's fabulous. And I said, right at the end, all you have to do is just turn your back to the audience, lean back, and there'll be a technical guy in front of you. He'll hit you with smoke, and as the jet engines take off, you'll just disappear into nothing. Terry, we are out of time. You are a true right. legend okay. of the Melbourne entertainment scene. You've done so much for the community. I know there's people that are just, you know, hanging off your every word as I am. Uh, it's been wonderful to chat with you. Uh, it's been a great privilege. Thank you so much for your time today. I really You're welcome, John. Bye. The wonderful Terry Tinsel there. You are and in your face on 3CR. 3CR. Well, 30 years ago last month, Melbourne lesbian film Dykes of Our Restless Days premiered at Melbourne's Glasshouse Theatre and then kind of disappeared. On the line, we do have Jean Taylor. Jean was one of the people involved in the play Dykes of Our Restless Days, which became the film. Uh, Jean, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much, James. I'm glad to be here. It's a wonderful history. It's a wonderful lost piece of of Melbourne lesbian history. Uh, Tell us all about it, Jean. (laughs) Well, uh, Darks of Our Restless Days was Amazon Theatre's second uh, performance, the second second, uh, play. Uh, The first one was um, Spot the Dark in 1990, which we put on for the Lesbian Festival in 1990. And then uh, we were so excited about all the success of 
the, the success of that that we uh, what we did was um, in each of our plays we devised the whole idea of it and then we all wrote the script and then we all took made up our characters and performed uh, whatever play that we were doing. And in Dykes of Very Restless Days, it was sort of like a cast of thousands, really, because everybody wanted to be in it, and um, all, all of the Amazon Theatre group, and, and we'd attracted a few more members along who'd, who'd never performed in their lives before either. So uh, it, it, we it, basically, we because we devised our own characters, it was a matter of making it into a lesbian household that contained most of the... Um, performers and characters and then devising plots around that and the various interactions between the characters. It was a wonderfully vibrant time for lesbian culture yeah. uh, and politics in Melbourne, the very early 1990s uh, and, of course, the late 80s. That whole period in the 90s was incredibly vibrant. Much of it did revolve around shared households. Can yeah. you tell us a bit about that that Melbourne lesbian culture in that era? Well, well uh we keep in, keeping in mind that uh, for the first 20 years from 1970 uh, and through the 80s and, in, and up to 1990, for example, most of us had been involved in the women's liberation movement. Um, we started um, from the uh, premise that women were oppressed, which was quite true, it still is in the society, and we were going to make changes. So there's a very political, politically active um, uh, women's liberation movement in Melbourne and, and indeed around Australia, and uh, lesbian feminists were at the forefront of all of that. You know, so not only did we start um, making necessary changes for ourselves as women, we were also starting to make the necessary changes for ourselves as lesbians, and we and um, we we're out and proud and all that kind of stuff. So by the end of the 1980s, um, there was a whole movement rather than um, uh, concentrate on what our uh, uh, about our impression oppression as women. We decided to start celebrating ourselves as lesbians, and uh, I was involved in getting the first um, uh, lesbian festival off the ground. Ten days of um, lesbian activities uh, in 1990. I was on the Lesbian Conference Collective, for example, and we booked out uh, many, many rooms at Melbourne Uni. We had a 1,000 lesbians at that conference uh, over three days. Uh, the 10-day festival included plays, uh, entertainment, music, uh, a concert, a whole range of things. So we booked out Footscray Community Arts Centre for that, uh, for a lot of that. Um, so it was a time in the, in the early 1990s in particular and, and all the way rest of the 1990s, uh, in actual fact, where lesbians were not only celebrating our sexuality but were out and visible as lesbians and all of our activities reflected that. And this is where most on theatre, we wanted to put on plays that reflected our life and our lifestyle and what we were doing uh, with that and, of course, setting our second play around a lesbian household, as you've uh, uh, noted too, that there were a lot of lesbian households around. And um, we wanted to... Uh, I think because we'd come of age as lesbians... 
we were making comedies because we could then laugh at ourselves. We we were not only overjoyed about being lesbians and our politics and all the rest of it, but we could see the funny side of our lifestyle. And I think that's when people are confident in themselves they can then start uh, making comedy and seeing the um, the very you know the funny side of life as well. And it was a real time when there was a strong movement around queer law reform, equal opportunity law reform, but also, of course, when Darks of Our Restless Days was was a play and then became a film. It was, you know, at the at the peak years of of the AIDS yes. epidemic as well, where where the queer community was really organising its activism around that. Mm. Well, partly most of that happened through the eighties, um, and and. But at the beginning of the 90s, so with the AIDS, the AIDS, the AIDS um, uh, epidemic started mainly in the 80s, but it's just continued ever since. So that was an underlying aspect of uh, everything that was happening. Uh, and of course, by the time, the, I think into the 90s, there was, uh, there was much, many more drugs around and that sort of stuff in terms of it, it wasn't such a a given that uh, gay males were going to be dying either. So that made it a little easier, uh, sort of a much more lighter era in the 90s. Um, and because the AIDS epidemic didn't didn't affect lesbians so much, uh, well, uh, we, it did to a certain extent, but not to the extent that, that gay males have had. So that did not impact our community in the same way. And we were able to get on with our politics and our lives as lesbians um, in a much um, much more celebratory, celebratory way in the 90s than we had in the previous decades. Uh, and yes, and we had the lesbian festivals. We've had lesbian festivals all the way through the 90s in every state. Um, in 1991, uh, for example, when we were doing Dykes of Our Restless Days, uh, the lesbian festival, we had a lesbian festival in January in Melbourne over 10 days at Footscray Community Arts Centre, and then we went to Sydney through the year, uh, I think July, and um, and the Sydney Darks up there booked the Opera House. So we had 2,000 lesbians at the Opera House for a concert uh, that featured um, Robin Archer and Judy Small and the Top Twins and a whole range of lesbian performers, which was absolutely fantastic. So I see the early 90s and probably through the 90s as a peak era for for lesbians in terms of uh, what we were doing and how we were doing it. And I can really see then, after you've outlined all of that, why there was a cast of thousands that <laughs> wanted to be in the film. Now, the film's history is absolutely fascinating. Yes. Uh, Pat Longmore, uh, rest right. in peace, made it on a, on a budget of $700, which even yes. in you know, 1991 was nothing. Yes. Yes, uh, right. Tell us about the making of the film. Well, um Pat Longmore, as you're probably aware, was a film buff and knew a lot about films. And um, so the film was actually, I think, made in 1992. Would that be right? Or was it actually screened in 1992? Yeah, 92. Yes. I think it was It was actually made in, in 91. And filmed in 92 and, and shown in 92. So we were, we were making that film because Pat was on the um, Lesbian and Gay Film Festival uh, board and wanted to show the film because she to help start the first. Uh, we had a lesbian, whole lesbian festival of films in 1990 for the lesbian festival, and then um, then in 1991, uh, Pat 
was instrumental in helping to start up the Lesbian, Gay and Lesbian and Gay Film Festival. And so for the next festival in 1992, she was keen to... Uh, make a film of Dykes of Our Restless Days because she could see the, you know, the uh, uh, that that would make a good film, and um, so that it would go on to the 1992 festival, and um, so with uh, no filming experience from our point of view, from the Amazon Theatre point of view, we were still very keen to do that, and with Pat on board, she knew how to do these things, so we. I think we booked a room at Footscray Community Arts Centre and uh, became, um, yes, we a couple of friends who were um, able to um, film the, the whole thing. We just did the play with the, with the cameras going with different angles and, and made the film that way. Yeah, it was shot on video. Pat said at the time that uh, she wanted it to be like a sitcom. So mm. it was shot on video with lots of different angles happening. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite innovative. Yeah. And uh, she was actually on the board of what was called the International Gay and Lesbian Film Festival here in Melbourne, which became the Queer mm. Film Festival mm. later on. Later on, yep. And there was a bit of a controversy on holidays. That while she was on holidays, the board decided that they wouldn't show it at the festival. Yes. Because they felt it didn't have any cinematic value and uh, because it was shot on video and there was a a big row. Yes, there was. Uh, We were furious and 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 totally disappointed, of course, um, that the film wasn't going to be shown because we'd put a lot of time and effort into it. And we assumed, you know, in in those days, that that, um, the the community was not as uh, professionally... um, uh, organised, so we assumed as as part of the community that we'd made a lesbian film. Here's the lesbian and gay film festival. Of course, our film would go into the programming, and then they knocked it back. So uh, that that's why we put it on ourselves because they'd knocked it back. We thought, damn it all, it's got to be shown anyway. And so we organised something at the um, RMIT. Um, uh, the Glass yes, House Theatre. The, the that's right, at the, the theatre there. So um, so it, it did cause a bit of a stir in the lesbian community because the lesbian community was right behind us and how dare they and what are they doing and heavens above. And then, of course, they um, sacked Pat, which was adding insult to injury. And so, uh, again, there's a whole big kerfuffle about that, about what was happening and how was that happening and why. Um, and the, the board... Just, just stuck by their guns. They weren't going to back down. They weren't going to show our film. So uh, there was nothing much to be done apart from a big flurry of letters in the in the press and stuff like that. But um, yes, we, we couldn't get them to change their minds, and they were not going to even. Yes, it just wasn't up to standards or something. You know that sort of you know excuse that they wouldn't put it on. So I'm not sure exactly what, why, you know, any background to that, but the fact was that um, Pat was no longer welcome as part of that whole, uh, you know, lesbian and gay film thing after that. And, of course, they probably didn't realise its historical significance, both in terms of the era and just how significant it was for lesbian culture, but also how it was depicting a lesbian culture in Melbourne. Uh, and I don't think there's been many, if any, films made since about lesbian no. shared households in this town. No, no. Well, you wouldn't, would you? I mean, uh, uh, I, I'm not quite sure whether it was personalities or what was going on. 
Of course, Dykes of Our Restless Days did premiere as we set the Glass House mm. Theatre at RMIT on the 29th of March, 1992. Mm. It was an all-women audience, uh, yes, very yes. much in line with the politics of the time, I suppose. Yes, yes. Uh, and the crowd loved it yes, from the newspaper right. reports. Yes. We put on two performances, actually, two shows, and we actually made a, a book of our first play, Dykes of... Uh, Dykes of... No... Spot the Dark, and uh, sold it in the foyer during, uh, you know, um, got it launched in the foyer by Donna Jackson, who's, who had already started the Women's Circus by that stage, um, just to, you know, sort of cover some of our costs and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, so it became a book as well. Well, the first play became a book, not the second play. But uh, so, um, and Pat, of course, was a very well-known figure in Melbourne because she ran the Kingston Hotel for six years. Uh, did, did you know about the Kingston Hotel? I don't, but it does sound fascinating. Do tell. Yes. Well, in 1980, Pat um, and a, a, a consortium of other lesbians decided to take over the Kingston Hotel as the licensees of the Kingston Hotel, which is a, a, still a pub in, in Richmond, Hyatt Street, Richmond. And uh, But then the others dropped out, so Pat became the licensee and the owner and the manager of this hotel, which immediately, because it was being run by a lesbian, became the women's pub. Now, we, she she was a licensee for six years, till 86. That was a pub that had all lesbians behind the counter. Um, the uh, bar dykes held the uh, pool room in the, in the front room. The uh, lesbian feminists uh, held the bistro room downstairs. So we had fundraisers and... Um, whole range of activities happening in the in the bistro area and um uh the locals who were a bit bemused by it they were still able to come because it was an open pub so but it, that was a pub that was held by lesbians for six years as open pub with there were still regular people coming to the pub you know for the locals and stuff like that but uh, we had a place to go for six days a week um, you know, from 10 to 10 at night. It was fantastic. What a wonderful lost piece of, of yes. Melbourne's lesbian history and what a travesty it no longer exists. And we yes. lost the glass house as well, which yes. is a, a theme that's happening all around the world, not just it for is. lesbian pubs, but gay yes. pubs as well. Yep. Yep. Uh, and it's really sad, isn't it? It is sad. Um, yes, there have been... Uh, uh, there were a lot, a lot of pubs around. We used to, not pubs, but lesbian nights at pubs. We'd, we'd have a night, really, you know, a regular night at various pubs around Melbourne. Uh, all of it's gone. All of it's gone. In fact, lesbians have been invisibilised over the last few years, which is a huge um, loss to our community. Um, and we can't, uh, yes, we're not allowed to advertise and, you know, that sort of stuff because of, you know, the current political climate. Um, but really, the 90s were our peak era. Then it's only in the last uh, 20 years, it's amazing to say this, but 20 years we've been told that we're not allowed to gather um, as lesbians anymore without um, controversial, you know, controversy and stuff like that. And that's always been part of the fight for the lesbian community, hasn't it? Mm. You know, lesbian visibility. Yeah, and absolutely. lesbian invisibility, of course, is linked to so many, you know, health issues as well, yes. isn't it? I mean, if you yes. can't be visible, if you can't yep. interact with your community, then that's it's right. terribly that's unhealthy. Right. Yes. It's, um, 
part of the uh, to be out and proud is you know one of those um, slogans goes is absolutely essential for somebody's well-being on any level you know whoever you are and however you are but and so the lesbian community has fought very hard and uh, to to maintain that visibility over many many years several decades in actual fact but so it's been a very hard thing for us to be not allowed to gather and and being made illegal uh, and all that sort of stuff if we want to gather with ourselves because every oppressed group needs to get together with other like-minded and you know part of your oppressed group in order to um, uh, discuss you know matters of mutual you know concern and uh, around a whole range of issues and health being one of them of course that's very important so not to be able to do that has made a very peculiar it's very odd for those of us who are out and proud for years and then suddenly we can't be anymore you know in that public sense Jean, I have to ask about Dykes of Our Restless Days. Was it mm-hmm. ever digitised? Was the video ever digitised? It would be wonderful to have another screening. I know. When I saw that on your question, I thought, no, I don't think we have. And uh, it made me wonder, do we even have a copy? <laughs> you know, I'm going to have to follow that up. I'm part of, part of the Women's Liberation Lesbian Feminist Archives at, at Melbourne Uni, and we do have lots of archives, archives, lots of videos and stuff of various performances over the years of Women's Circus and... Um, you know, performing older women's circus and stuff. But I'll have to have a look and see. We did um, uh, uh, we did always video our performances on stage, uh, you know, as a record. Um, so we would probably have a record of Dykes of Our Restless Days in that sense. But I'm not sure if the film, um, what, what happened and whether Pat might have kept copies. And, of course, Pat died in 92. So... Um, it might be part of her estate somewhere, but it's not. I'm not sure. I'll have to look that up and see if we have. Uh, I don't think. I think if we do have a copy, it'll still be in video. I don't think we've we've got a DVD of it. Uh, although we do have a little bit of money at the moment, we're considering making some of our videos available on DVD, but I'm um, not sure about that one. It's interesting. The Australian Queer Archives was of the view that a videotape was in the Amazon Theatre Archives at Melbourne Uni. So maybe right. there is a, a tape there somewhere. It would yes. be fascinating. Yes. As I say, it might be just of the play rather than the filmed play. You know what I mean? There's a bit of a difference. But I will check on that. Yes, it should be. It should be there. Absolutely. Jean Taylor, thank you for taking us down memory lane and sharing a wonderful piece of Melbourne's queer history, Melbourne's lesbian history, the wonderful play and film Dykes of Our Restless Days. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for asking me, James. It's fantastic. My All pleasure. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.